your row. We're kicking off a brand new series this week called Greater. Uh, this series is, is unlike any series I've ever done before. What we're going to do is we're going to journey back into the Old Testament, uh, and we're going to look at some stories, some that are very familiar, some that may be a little less familiar, uh, but we're going to take four weeks and look at stories that are direct confrontations between Yahweh, our God, and the surrounding gods of the Israelites. Uh, we're going to see the, these face-offs, these mono a mono moments, uh, where, where God comes face-to-face with this false God of the neighboring people, and how God shows us that he truly is greater. These stories teach us many things about our God, about the way that he relates to us, about the ways that he moves in our life. Uh, and so I'm fired up to get into these stories with you. Today, we're going to start with a very familiar one. If you got your Bible, go ahead and open and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18 is a, a very well-known story here uh, of basically my dad can beat up your dad. Uh, what, what happens here, it's, it's Elijah on Mount Carmel. Uh, there's going to be a, a scene that most of you are probably familiar with where there's 450 prophets of Baal and one prophet of God, uh, and they're going to have this face-off. They're going to have this challenge, whose God can rain down fire from heaven first? Uh, and, and it's very extremely well-known, but I think for most of us, there's some stuff embedded in this story that we've probably missed. I know for me, in studying and preparing for this, there's some things that I saw that I was absolutely unaware of. Uh, and I think sometimes we get so familiar with the story, we can miss some of the, the obvious pieces of it. And so I want to share with you today uh, this story. And I want us to come to it with fresh eyes uh, because we are probably mostly familiar with it. So don't just write it off. Don't just say, hey, I know everything in here. Allow God's spirit to speak as we dig into this. Um, we're going to look a little bit at Elijah's name, starting off, first of all. If you're not familiar, you've probably heard the name Elijah. Uh, in fact, at one point in time, we had chosen Elijah was going to be our next son's name. In fact, we decided we are going to name our, our next child. If we had another son after Judah, he was going to be Elijah James. Uh, and we went out to dinner one night with some of my good friends, one of my uh, old roommates, uh, and they were like, we're pregnant. Praise God, hallelujah, we're excited for you, and we're naming the kid Elijah James. Oh, not so excited for you anymore, right? Uh, like, thanks a lot, buddy. Like, how is that even possible? Uh, so we decided, okay, Elijah James is off the table, and then we named him Noah, and he's so much a Noah. It was absolutely the right thing, so thank you, Matt Bowen, for stealing our name. Um, but uh, uh, Elijah is, a, is an awesome name. It means literally the Lord is God. Uh, Eli is God uh, or Lord, and Yah, Jah, is short for Yahweh, right? So it's the Lord, Yahweh is God, is literally what it is declaring. What, what a cool name. What a cool statement. Every time you get to talk to somebody you know named Elijah, you are declaring that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. Uh, and so Elijah, at this point in time in this story, is basically the only remaining prophet of God in Israel. Israel is the northern kingdom. There's been a split. There's a southern kingdom, Judah, and a northern kingdom, Israel. Uh, and the northern kingdom is very wicked. Uh, it has turned its back on God. At this point in time, we have perhaps the most wicked king in all the history of Israel. His name is Ahab. 
And Ahab is incredibly wicked for a number of reasons. Uh, Certainly, he's been influenced greatly by his wife, Queen Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel was not an Israelite. Uh, He married outside of the family, but not outside of the family so much as outside of the faith. Uh, And so he brought in a wife who worshipped Baal uh, and worshipped him significantly. And so she brings in and institutes Baal worship at a level that had not yet been seen in Israel. This had happened before. They had turned and worshipped him and partially divided. But but at this point, Baal worship becomes essentially the, the national religion of Israel. Uh, it is supported by the palace. Uh, their, their prophets run rampant. They can do essentially whatever they want. Uh, and so we want to talk a little bit before we get into this about who is Baal. Baal was a Canaanite word, uh, which originally meant owner or lord, and eventually came to mean God. It was actually a title that was assigned to all of their gods. If you uh, are familiar with polytheistic religions, uh, they have many gods, uh, and gods of sun, and gods of rain, and gods of harvest, and gods of this and of that, right? And so think of kind of the, the Greek pantheon is maybe easier to relate it to. Well, Baal, Uh, literally means God, G-O-D, lowercase G-O-D, but it was a title assigned especially to their supreme God, to their supreme being. And so his name was Baal Hadad, uh, or really just Hadad, uh, which is like, yo, Hadad, right? Uh, But uh, Hadad was the God of storms and rain. Uh, He was the God who provided water. Now, you think about where this was in the Middle East, right? This is a dry area. This is an arid area. I grew up in Seattle. We did not pray for rain. We never prayed for rain. I don't ever remember being like, oh, God, send the rain. Uh, that we, we had plenty of it, okay? Uh, this is a different environment. This is a different place. And so in the Middle East, their probably most common prayer to whatever God they worshiped is, we need rain. Provide some water. They didn't have modern-day irrigation. They didn't have modern conveniences to bring water from the rivers out to the fields. And so they were constantly needing and believing for rain. And so thus, the God of rain, the God of storms, ascends to the top of the Canaanite pantheon. He is the supreme God. So he was Baal, hey, Dad, but eventually they just called him Baal. That was just the title because he was the God of gods. He was the God who sat over all the rest of them. Now, I should also mention this. In their language, it wasn't actually pronounced Baal. It was Baal. There's actually a little accent mark in between the two A's, um, but it has been anglicized to Baal. We've always heard it as Baal. I'll probably call him Baal uh, throughout this. For for some reason, I don't feel obligated to make sure that I say his name honorably. Um, So uh, we'll we'll stick with Baal, but his his real name was Baal. Hey, Dad. Um, So in the story... In the text, just to get you caught up, at this point in time, they are in the middle of a drought. Three years before, Elijah stood before Ahab as the last Israelite prophet, the last prophet of God, and said, God, there's not going to be any more rain until I say so. Uh, Defying this king. By the way, this king has been martyring and persecuting all the other prophets. 
They've all been slaughtered. They've all been destroyed. They've all been killed. And Elijah goes before him, appearing uh, as the mouthpiece for God, and he says, it's not going to rain for three years. Oh, he didn't say three years. He said, until I say so. It ends up being three years. Uh, so we're in there in this massive drought. So before we get even to the battle on Mount Carmel, before we get to this, this climactic scene where we see Baal versus Yahweh, we see these two gods clash, there's already been some body blows struck against Baal. Baal's the god of rain. He's the god of storms. You can imagine the scoffing that the prophets of Baal do when Elijah stands before the king and says, hey, it's not going to rain. Yahweh's not the God of rain. Baal is the God of rain. We got that. Don't worry, Ahab. You don't have to worry. He's just a little troll. He's just trying to upset you. You don't need to worry about that guy. He's got no power. There's no way there's going to be a drought. And then it doesn't rain for a couple weeks. And then it doesn't rain for a couple months. Then it doesn't rain for a year. People start looking around. Where's Baal? And so this is the context of the battle on Mount Carmel. Baal has already been silent. Baal has already been absent. And so now we come to the showdown. We're going to pick the story up today in verse 20. Read along with me, starting in 1 Kings chapter 18. Verse 20 says this. says, so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel, and he assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah has issued the challenge, and Ahab says, we're going, we're going to meet your challenge. So Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? You ever had a season in life where you wavered between two opinions? Maybe God's going to provide, or maybe I need to do this for myself. Maybe God's going to send a spouse, or maybe it's okay for me to gratify my desires before marriage because it's taken too long. Maybe God is actually worth worshiping, or maybe there's something worth worshiping in this bottle, on this website. See, it's easy for us to look back in time and say how ridiculous to waver between two opinions, but I wonder how many of us in this room often waver between two opinions. How many of us in this room say God is God, and yet our lifestyle says sometimes something else is God? Yeah, he's God for this. Yeah, I trust him for that, but this over here, I got to take care of myself. And so Elijah asked the question, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long are you going to be stuck in the middle? How long will you straddle the fence? One day you worship Baal. One day you worship Yahweh. Make a decision. Jesus, in the last book of the Bible, says, how dare you be hot or cold? Or how dare you be lukewarm? I would that you would either be hot or you would be cold. Stop wavering between two opinions. Elijah says, if the Lord is God... Follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Just make a choice. Take a stand. Who is it going to be? Elijah issues a divine ultimatum to the people of Israel. Who's your God? Who is he going to be? Now, in the ESV, it translates this statement a little more literally, and I like the way that it translated, so check this out. It says, how, will you, how long will you go limping between two different opinions. 
This is the Hebrew figure of speech that they use. It literally means, how long will you go limping? I wonder how many of us are walking with a limp right now. Why are you walking with a limp? Because you got one leg over here and one leg over here. You're going in two different directions, and so you're limping your way through your Christian life because God isn't really God of all. He's only God of certain areas. He's only God of certain pieces of life. He's only trustworthy with this, but not with that. And so Elijah says, because of your wavering, because of your divided heart, you are limping through life. Can't help but think of our own country right now. We are a country that's limping its way along because we can't decide, is God worth it or not? We got some days he is, some days he's not. Things go terrible. There's a terrorist attack. All of a sudden, everybody's worshiping Jesus. Everybody's praying. Everybody's heart is with him. But, but we can't handle prosperity. We can't handle it when things go right. And so we turn our hearts away from him again and again, and we limp our way through. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, to the people of Israel, he said, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Doesn't take a math major to figure out where the odds are here. Then he says this. He says, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Now, there's another piece of this story that you need to understand. Baal represented his portraits, his pictures, his engravings. He was a man with the head of a bull. So Elijah doesn't just randomly choose an animal to sacrifice. This isn't just the, the one animal that they had a couple left after the drought. This isn't just the animal that was most convenient to bring to the altar. He says, we're literally going to put Baal on the altar. He's your God. He's the one. So if we put a bull, surely Baal will show up on the bull. I think he just called bull, right? Uh, so can you say that in church? I just did. Uh, verse 24, he says, then you call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of Yahweh, the Lord, the God who answered by fire. He's God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah just puts it all on the line. We're just going all in. We're, we're, we're going to see who this really is. Somebody's going to show up. Imagine the faith it takes on this. Man, what, what if you miss God? What if God wasn't in this? If God wasn't in this, you know what's going to happen? Elijah's going to die. It's going to be the end for him. Then to this point, God has protected him. God has shielded him. But he also had the support of the people. Uh, and so Ahab and Jezebel wouldn't quite touch Elijah the way they touched the other prophets. But if Elijah loses this showdown in front of the whole nation, the support of the people has gone. So Elijah is literally playing with fire. He, he's literally putting his own life on the line to demonstrate who God truly is. Verse 25, it says, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the Baals and or bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So Elijah creates the showdown. He chooses a bull, the representation of Baal, to be the sacrifice. And then he says... Ladies first, right? 
You guys, uh, your turn. Go ahead. Like, he literally gives them the, the first dibs, the first crack at this. This dude is bold. This dude is confident. He is walking in faith. Verse 26. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. Now imagine the doubt creeping up in these prophets. They didn't just start calling on Baal that morning. They've been calling on Baal for three years. They've been believing Baal to show himself as the God of the storm, the God of rain, the God who provides for their crops, and he hasn't shown up. And so you can imagine the panic in these 450. Despite the odds, despite the fact that they had him outnumbered significantly, I imagine these prophets are, they're walking with the limp. They're wavering between two opinions at this moment. Baal answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. They did a rain dance to no effect. To no avail. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Did I mention I love Elijah? <laughs> Elijah is the sarcastic prophet. Uh, Elijah, he is my hero. Uh, he starts taunting the enemy. He starts talking smack. Uh, it's one of him and 450 of them, and he starts running his mouth. Check this out. He says, shout louder. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's sleeping and you must awaken him. So they shouted louder. It works. They respond to his taunts. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom. We think cutting is a modern destruction. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. The enemy who wants to destroy our young people and causes them to harm themselves is the same enemy 3,000 years ago that caused the prophets of Baal to slash themselves, to cut themselves, seemingly as an act of worship, as an act of, of declaring their need. It says, until their blood flowed. Verse 29, midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. So they've been going for like six hours, eight hours, maybe ten hours. I don't know what time the evening sacrifice was, but it's been a while. There was no response. No one answered. No one even paid attention. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. There was already an altar there, but it had been destroyed as the nation had turned away from God. So Elijah begins restoring the altar. He begins putting back together the place of worship to Yahweh. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He builds a large trench around the altar. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, 
cuts Baal apart, and he lays Baal on the altar. Then he says to them, fill four large jugs of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Four large jugs of water. There's two statements being made here. One is he's raising the, the, the degree of difficulty, right? Like if this is the Olympics, he's making sure he's got qualified for a perfect 10 because uh, he's doing max difficulty on this. This isn't just going to be an accident. I'm not going to let anybody say, oh, man, there was just some lightning that happened to strike at that moment. Like we're going to make sure everybody knows only God can do this. The other statement is they're in a drought. You, 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 exactly. You gonna waste water? Like you, th this is taking. This is TP in somebody's house at the beginning of COVID. Okay. It's like, what are you doing? That's valuable. Not now. Maybe another time you could TP somebody's house, but not right now. Okay. So he takes the most valuable resource and he dumps it on the altar. He pours it on the offering and on the wood. Verse 34, now he says, do it again. Do it again. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. How many jugs is this? Twelve jugs. Twelve stones. Twelve jugs of water. Elijah's teaching the people something. He's reminding them who they are. They have lost their identity. They have forgotten who they were called to be and created to be. And Elijah is making a statement in front of the whole people. This is who you are. I wonder who needs to be reminded today who you are who God created you to be, who God called you to be, who God set you in this generation to be, not to live and blend in with the culture, but to stand out. You've been set apart. You've been bought with the price. You were holy. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. It absorbs into the bull. It absorbs into the wood. It absorbs into the altar. And there's so much, there's such an abundance of water that it runs out and it fills up the trench. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Who's he reminding that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Not God. Reminding the Israelites of their identity. This is who you were created to follow. This is your God. This is your DNA, your genetics, your spiritual heritage. You are the people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is your God. You ever notice how sometimes preachers preach while they're praying? He preaches while he's praying. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God. In Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Verse 37, answer me, Lord. Everybody say, answer me, Lord. He says, answer me, Lord, answer me. Not so that Elijah can live. Not so that he can finally be free from persecution from the throne, so that he can finally stop living in, in nooks and ravines and widows' homes and all these different places that God took him to provide him so that he can actually come back and see his family, not for, not for any selfish reason. Answer me, Lord, so that these people will know 
that you, the Lord, are God. What's Elijah's name? The Lord is God. He's saying, God, remind them. He was born for this moment. This is who he is. This is his literal identity. It's a declaration that the Lord is God. And now he prays, let them know that you are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Oh, God, that you would turn our hearts back once again. Back to the declaration that you were God. Back to going all in, to getting one foot out over here and putting both feet in with you. That we'd stop walking with the limp. That we'd stop wavering between two opinions. God, turn our hearts today. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and it burned up the sacrifice. The wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. You probably already knew this, right? You probably knew this is where this was headed. The fire of God fell, falls and it consumes it all. Last week we finished up a series called Unshakable. And some of you guys have seen some shaking, had some reports even in the last week. Man, I knew when Pastor Troy said there'd be some shaking that was going to happen. I just didn't know it was going to be Monday morning. Didn't know it was going to be Tuesday. Didn't know it was going to happen Monday as I'm uh, driving to Kansas City to take my son to a Mariners game for his ninth birthday celebration. Uh, we end up having brake issues, and we, we go to AutoZone, and it's like one of those times where AutoZone, everything's wrong. Like, you need to repair this, you need to replace this, you need to replace this. And it was just like, come on. We were doing this trip on a shoestring. Like, we had pulled it off with, like, a $70 Roach Motel. Uh, and, and, like, we went to Kansas City because it was the cheapest tickets because they're the second worst team in the league. Uh, and so we had, like, this was supposed to be, like, the really inexpensive trip. Also, it was the best chance for us to see a win, and we didn't see a win, right? And so, I <laughs> some stuff starts shaking. Brakes literally start shaking, right? It's like, come on, does it have to be that literal? Like, so we did this series about unshakable faith. And we closed it with this passage from Hebrews 12. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God reverently, or acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. I wonder if the author of Hebrews, writing to an audience very familiar with Old Testament scripture, is calling back to Elijah when he says our God is a consuming fire. He's the God who sends fire from heaven that consumes not just the sacrifice and not just the altar, but actually dries up the water and vaporizes the stone. Our God is a consuming fire. What do we do with all this story? I'm going to give you a few things to write down. we got one more verse to get to, but before we do, write this down. In the end, God's fire consumes everything that draws us from him. In the end, everything that competes for your heart. What did Elijah pray? Turn our hearts back towards you. I don't know what's competing for your heart today. Maybe it's something good that's not God. Maybe it's something sinful, and you know it doesn't belong. But whatever that idol is, that's all Baal was. He was an idol. He was a false god. He didn't really exist. In the end, God's fire is going to consume all of that. 
The question is, are we going to let it go before the fire gets to it? Are my hands still going to be on it? In the end, when God says, that thing is not of me, and he vaporizes it. Or am I going to release it and say, God, my heart is fully yours. What's competing for your heart today, church? What is it that's contending? What is it that's causing you to put one foot here and one foot here? What's causing your limp? Whatever it is, I dare you, I challenge you to take your hands off it. Because the day is coming when that thing will be consumed by fire. In other words, it ain't going to last. There is only one thing worthy of worship that sustains, and that is Yahweh, the God of heaven. And anything else we put our heart into, anything else we allow to take that place of glory in our heart is ultimately worthless. And there's good things that compete. It can be our kids. It can be our marriage. It can be our job. It could be our calling. It can be some really, really good things. But in the end, none of those things have the significance of Yahweh. It could be very sinful and ungodly things as well. In the end, God's fire consumes everything that draws us from him. He is a consuming fire, and he will shake everything that can be shaken. So that which only cannot be shaken will remain. Here's what's crazy. I mean, it's all crazy. Here's another piece of this that's crazy about God sending fire from heaven that vaporizes the altar, the bowl, the water, and the stone. Science teaches us that in order to vaporize rock, you need temperatures of at least 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on the kind of rock. Some kinds of rock, it can take up to 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, there was an expedition, uh, NASA sent a rover to Mars in 2022, last year, uh, and they wanted to see what was under the first layer of rock on Mars. And so they sent a very, very powerful machine, which I don't even know exactly how to explain to you, but to, to heat it up. And long story short, it required over 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit to vaporize the rock so they could get below the first layer of rock and find out what was underneath it. Now, if you do some quick calculations, if God sends 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which, by the way, the surface of the sun is like 8,000 degrees, um, it's hot. If you get anywhere near something like that, everybody should be dead. Nobody should have survived this. This should have vaporized literally everyone on Mount Carmel if it liquefied the rock. And yet, nobody dies. He's the God who gets in the fire with the Hebrew children, and they emerge unscathed. The same God who is the another in the fire is the God who sends fire from heaven so hot, not just hot enough to consume a bull, not just an oven, 5,000 degrees or hotter to consume the entire sacrifice, and yet nobody's harmed. Only God can do that. Here's what's so amazing about that. They didn't even have the technology to understand how hot that was back then. 
They, they didn't even have any clue. And God just shows off his all-consuming fire, his incredible power, and just takes it all away, just vaporizes the whole thing. I want to show you one last verse, 1 Kings 18, verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. If you've heard this story as many times as I have or read it, if you've, you, you've, you've studied it, you know this is the declaration. When I was a kid, my, my parents had a set of, of Christian story cassette tapes. That's how old I am. And some of you don't know what a cassette is. Uh, ask mom and dad, they'll tell you. Uh, I listened to Christian story cassette tapes, and, and I remember this story specifically. I can still hear the chants at the end of the story. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I would fall asleep to these when I was a kid. And, and here's what I didn't realize then, and maybe you didn't realize, maybe you did. What are they doing? Elijah, the prophet of God, whose name means the Lord is God. What's happened? Elijah was born for this moment. This was his destiny. This was his, his coup de grace. This was his greatest crowning achievement for God's glory. It wasn't the only thing he did. He did amazing things. The Bible records seven miracles that he did. He raised up an incredible understudy, Elisha, who went out and did 14 miracles. God used him in massive, massive ways, but this is the thing he's most remembered for. And at the end of the story, Elijah, which means the Lord is God, at the end of his greatest story, the entire nation of Israel is declaring the Lord is God. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think God had him marked from birth for a purpose. God had chosen him for his generation. And here's what I believe. I believe you were born for this moment. I believe God knew what generation he was placing you in. I believe he knew the challenges, the hang-ups, the, the shortcomings of the generation you'd live in. He knew Elijah would grow up in a generation that turned its heart from God, that worshipped Baal, that worshipped this bull, God of the rain, God of the storm, and that God was going to use him to bring all the people back home to declare that the Lord is God. So often we get frustrated with the shortcomings of the culture around us. We get angry by the unbelief of the people we work with, by the, by the sin in the culture, and yet I don't believe those things have caught God off guard. I think God knew they were coming, and that's why he created you. That's why he put you in that workplace. That's why he put you in that school. That's why he put you in that broken, fallen, dysfunctional family, because somebody's got to call them back to the Lord is God. Born for this moment. Years later, the people of Israel will be taken into captivity as punishment for their failure to turn their heart fully back to God. They turn it back to God temporarily, but the next generation is going right back. And as they're in captivity, God raises up a lady named Esther. And in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, it says this, her cousin Mordecai encouraging her to stand up as an advocate for her people, to risk her life before the king who has now married her, to challenge him to protect the people of Israel, says this, if you remain silent of this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. God's not going to let his people be destroyed. God will be faithful. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time. 
as this. Our worship team just wrote a song for such a time as this. It's not just a catchy title. It's not just a catchy song. You were made for such a time as this. You were born for this moment. Not just for this moment, but you were born for this moment. God is not cut off guard by the struggles around you, by the weaknesses of the culture, by the temptation that is present. He knew it was coming, and he made you anyway. He called you anyway. He placed you here anyway because you were born for this moment. Amen? Amen. Super, super fast. I want to show you three truths that God reveals about himself in this story. We're going to make this really, really quick because I know we're about of time. But, but catch this with me. Number one, God is the God who provides. God's going to provide or Baal's going to provide? Who's it going to be? We just sang this song, Jireh. You are enough. It literally means the God who provides. Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yira, the God who provides. He is the God who provides. Baal couldn't provide. When the chips were down, when the nation came out to witness, when there was a showdown, mano a mano, my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> Bell didn't show up. No one responded. It says no one even paid attention. But when one man cried out to his God, he provided the fire that he was asking for. He consumed the altar and the sacrifice. The water, which I've always been most impressed by the water being consumed. But it's not the water, it's the stone. That's the most impressive, the most difficult, the highest degree of difficulty in the whole thing was taking out the stone. But none of it was difficult for God. He didn't have to, con he didn't have to go work out to train for this event. He was ready instantaneously to provide. I don't know what you need provided today, but I serve a God who provides. Second thing God reveals about himself in this story is God is the God who answers. He's the God who answers. Perhaps you feel that God is silent today. The reality is sometimes we don't hear from him. Now, the first thing to ask if you're not hearing from God is, are you in the word of God? Because the word of God tunes us into the voice of God. And so if you're not in the word, that would be my first encouragement. Start reading the Bible consistently, daily. But sometimes we even go through a season of wilderness when we're faithful, we're obedient, we're doing the right things, and it still seems like God's voice is distant. I promise you this, we serve a God who always answers. He doesn't always answer immediately. He doesn't always answer when we want to. Now, Elijah got the immediate response, right? Elijah called, God answered. But Jeremiah 33.3 says this. It says, call to me and I will answer you. Show you great and unspeakable things, unsearchable things that you do not know. We serve a God who promises an answer. He says, ask, you receive, seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Again and again, God promises he will answer. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He is going to answer. He's the God who provides. He's the God who answers. Thirdly, he shows that God is the God of the season. This is probably my favorite part. Who was Baal? He was the rain God. He was the storm God. He was the God who provided the rain that they so desperately needed. He was the supreme God of the Canaanites, the one who they needed the most, the one they trusted the most, the one who they honored and worshipped the most. And yet, the season never showed up. The season never changed. God said there's going to be no rain. 
and there was no rain. I don't have time to show it to you in this story, but what's about to happen after this ends on Mount Carmel, God sends the fire on Mount Carmel, but then God sends the rain. It's about to be a storm. Why? Because now that Baal has been defeated, now that the people see that Baal is not the one who provides, Baal is not the one who answers, Baal is not the one who can do anything, now God removes the blockage and he sends the rain. They have turned their hearts back to him. And once their hearts have been turned back to God, he's the God who answers with provision. He's the God who meets them in the season. But he was already the God in the drought. Maybe you're here today and you're in a drought. Maybe you're here today and you're in a rough season. I serve a God of every season, not just spring, summer, fall, and winter, but the season of loneliness, the season of discouragement, the season of doubt, the season of fear, and yes, the season of victory, the season of momentum, the, the, the season of provision, the season of miracles. He is the God in every season. His Godness is not defined by my season. But if we will place our trust in him, and if we will give our hearts to him fully, if we'll stop walking with the lamp, wavering between two opinions, I believe he'll meet you right there in your season. Your season of sickness. Your season of loss. Your season of lack. Your season of strife. Whatever that season looks like, I serve the God of the season, and I believe you do too. He's the God who provides. He's the God who answers. And he's the God of the season. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me, church?